Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Shackerman podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The song we're listening to, Genjer Genjer, comes from Indonesia. It tells the story of that country's modern history. Originally composed during the Second World War, the song became associated with the Indonesian Communist Party, the PKI, one of the world's largest. It was recorded in the 1960s by some of the country's leading pop stars. Then General Suharto seized power in a military coup and slaughtered the Indonesian left. Suharto's regime propagated a false story that PKI members had tortured a group of generals to death while singing Genjer Genjer. The song was banned by the new regime. Our guest today for a conversation about Indonesia's turbulent past and present is Michael Van. Michael is a professor of history at Sacramento State University. He specialises in the history of Southeast Asia. This is the first part of a two-part interview. Today's episode covers the events leading up to Suharto's coup in the 1960s. What was the nature of the Indonesian political system under the rule of Sukarno after the end of Dutch colonial rule? Well, one of the most important things to understand when we talk about um, post-colonial or recently decolonized Indonesia is the tremendous amount of optimism and pride that the the young nation state had in itself. They beat the uh, the Dutch in a war of independence from 1945 to 1949. And on independence in 49, they're the second largest post-colonial state after, after India. Of course, this is before the, the wave of decolonization around 1960. But they really see Indonesia as the wave of the future. And Indonesia is going to play a role in creating the post-colonial world. And Sukarno, the first president of Indonesia and this veteran of the um, the anti-colonial struggle against the Dutch, he jumps right onto the world stage. And um, he's a tremendously charismatic figure. He does things like host the Bandung Conference, the Africa-Asia Conference in 1955, which laid much of the groundwork for post-colonial collaboration amongst the global South, but also uh, helping to found the non-aligned movement with Nehru, Nasser, and, and Kuma. The following clip comes from Sukarno's address to the Bandung Conference. I am proud that my country is your host. It is a new departure in the history of the world that leaders of Asian and African peoples can meet together in their own countries to discuss and deliberate upon matters of common concern. In spite of diversity that exists among its participants, let this conference be a great success. Yes, there is diversity among us. Who denies it? Small and great nations are represented here with people professing almost every religion under the sun. Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, Confucianism, Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, Zoroastrianism, Shintoism, and others. 
almost every political face we encounter here democracy monarchism theocracy with innumerable variants and practically every economic doctrine has its representative in this hall marhainism socialism capitalism communism in all their manifold variations and combinations but again what harm is in diversity when there is unity in these sire this conference is not to oppose each other it is a conference of brotherhood at the same time that he's playing this role with the non-aligned movement he's posing for photo ops with uh president eisenhower vice president nixon and then in the early 60s um president kennedy and he's going to Moscow and Beijing and, and getting his picture taken with Khrushchev and Zhao Enlai. So in the figure of Sukarno, there's so much, again, optimism, pride, and aspiration for a new post-colonial order. And um, Sukarno brings that charisma uh, about international relations and Indonesia's role in international relations home. And he gives these incredible speeches. He he has a massive uh, stadium built in Jakarta, the Gloria Bungkarno Stadium. And he gives these incredible speeches in there that sometimes go on for quite, quite some time. And he talks about the old defos, the old established forces who are being challenged by the nefos, the new established forces. And he gives this sort of alphabet soup of acronyms with these sort of like historical struggles that the young Indonesian state will play a role in. And he combines that really lofty sort of global political rhetoric with some rather earthy populism. And he's really good about speaking to the common people. And uh, even though he's, he's very much elite, um, speaking with the commoners and in a, in a very common way that um, that reaches the lower classes of the Indonesian people. One of my favorite things about um, Sukarno is that he's the first president of Indonesia um, and he has this very high national esteem, yet he wants to be called Bung Karno. It's sort of a, a nickname, Bung meaning brother, uh, Karno, taking the last part of his name. So he's, we translate it as brother, but in, in California, we might say dude. He's like dude Karno. And, and this has tremendous popular appeal. At the same time, despite these great uh, international successes and this prominent role on the inter- international stage for Indonesia, things are a little chaotic at home. Um, flat out, there's the post-colonial problem of how to make a nation state out of the over 13,000 um, islands that have been colonized by the Dutch. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of debate on whether or not there was a uh, political precedent for this new Indonesian nation state. In the early modern period, there had been a Javanese kingdom that had at least claimed most of the territory that the Dutch will later colonize. But that's really the aberration to the history of this massive sprawling archipelago that's several thousand miles across. And so Sukarno, in this new post-colonial setting, essentially has to invent Indonesia and bring together people who speak over 350 different languages, not dialects, but languages, who live in this sprawling geography. And not everyone's on board with this new project of a secular Indonesian republic under Sukarno. From the beginning, um, there's Islamist factions that do not want a secular state. They want a a post-colonial state built on uh, their interpretation of Islamic principles. 
one of these groups, Darul Islam or the House of Islam, is in open opposition to the Indonesian Republic from its uh, its founding in 1945 and independence in 1949. And they engage in various levels of insurgency in the 1950s. Darul Islam is implicated in an assassination attempt on Sukarno in 1957, which was a grenade attack, which Sukarno survived, but um, six children died in this attack in Java. So you have the um, you have this Islamist opposition to the secular state. You also have regional military commanders in the 1950s, in several places in Sumatra and also in Sulawesi, which is in northern Indonesia, building up their own power base and in opposition to the central power in Jakarta. And the CIA aids some of these rebels. The, the Americans view Sukarno as a potential threat because of his. Uh, radical proclamations. And so they're more than willing to help destabilize Indonesia. Things culminate in 1958, where two revolutionary groups, the so-called Permesta uh, group, and then this revolutionary government of the Republic of Indonesia uh, joined forces. And um, now there's, there's two major regions of Indonesia that are in open revolt in Sumatra and in Sulawesi. This is crushed in the space of a few months, but guerrilla fighting continues uh, all the way until 1961. And this really helps to destabilize um, the Young Republic because we're just leaving the first decade of independence when this is going on. First films of the civil war in Indonesia. Airborne forces of the central government are flown into Sumatra, the main island rebelling against the government of President Sukarno. The commentator on this report about the rebellion in Sumatra echoed the US government line about Sukarno's alleged communist sympathies. Paratroopers hit the silk. Their target, rich American-operated oil fields seized by the rebels. At the same time, government troops move in by sea. In this shadow war, the issues are complex, the progress obscure, but some things can be noted. A rebel government on Sumatra has resorted to force to oppose the centralized pro-communist tendencies of the Java-based Sukarno regime. Second, American sources are concerned with Russian aid going to the central government. And third, much of Indonesia's wealth is centered in Sumatra's oil fields. Rebel prisoners are taken in this sortie in which government troops recapture the Caltex fields at Pakanbaru. While the oil wells are returned to operation and peace restored to the area, rebel guerrillas operate in the jungles just beyond. Leaflets tell the populace the campaign is directed only against rebel leaders. In the meantime, American oil workers and their families remain. U.S. ships stand by in case of emergency, in case the Indonesian civil war pursues a more destructive course amidst natural wealth and beauty. Now, the, the young Indonesian Republic is a liberal democracy with very active elections for parliament, but the, um, there's a political impasse by the 1950s, and some of these uh, divisions seem insurmountable. In the context of the political impasse and also the rebellions, Sukarno declares martial law in 1957, and then in 1959 declares what he calls guided democracy. And this is essentially suspending elections, and there won't be free and fair elections uh, really until the fall of Suharto, decades later. And in this period of so-called guided democracy, Sukarno sort of balances the two main forces that have grown in Indonesia. 
the Indonesian Communist Party, the PKI or PKI, and the Indonesian Officer Corps, uh, the TNI. And one re- represents the, the far left, the other represents the far right. And Sukarno tries to hold Indonesia together by balancing these two forces. His speeches obviously favor the PKI agenda, the communist agenda. Meanwhile, the um, the TNI, the officer corps, is allowed to um, increase its command of more and more local administrative power. So you start to have the army becoming essentially the real bureaucratic institutions of the state as we get to late 1950s and the early 1960s. And then this is all in the context of Sukarno's attack on Western businesses, which are still in Indonesia, Dutch businesses, British businesses, cast an eye towards American businesses. Um, These would be large plantations, also the oil and gas industry. And Sukarno moves to nationalize um, some, uh, some of these sectors. And the administration of things like oil and gas and sometimes plantations gets handed over to the Indonesian officer corps because they've got the administrative capabilities. So this creates more and more power for this right-wing officer corps. Meanwhile, the Indonesian Communist Party is this increasingly popular party. So all of this means that um, Sukarno is really engaging in this uh, incredible balancing act uh, or juggling act of these uh, diverse forces within Indonesia. In 1956, Sukarno spoke before the U.S. Congress and outlined his guiding philosophy. Perhaps you know already what our Pancasila is. It gives us the five principles of our state. These are, first, belief in God. Second, nationalism. Third, humanity. Fourth, democracy. Fifth, social justice. You've spoken about the role of the PKI during the period of Sukarno's rule, but could you speak a little in particular about the role that the Communist Party played in the political and social life of Indonesia as such a vast mass membership party? Yeah, the, the, the history of the, the PKI is is really fascinating and I think still poorly studied by um, most Western activists and, and scholars of the history of communism. It's the oldest communist party in, in Asia. It's founded in 1920, um, predates the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. It came out of the Indies Social Democratic Association, it was, uh, which was a multiracial organization of both uh, ethnic Indonesians, Jav- ethnic Javanese mostly, and Dutch. Um, Henk Snevelet, who was a, a Dutch uh, activist, helped found both the Social Democratic Association and then the uh, the Young Indonesian Communist Party. I would note that he also went on to help found the Chinese Communist Party the following year and then was a member of the Dutch Parliament in the 1930s. And Hank Snevelet uh, would go on to join the resistance against the Nazis and eventually died in a Nazi concentration camp in 1942. By the uh, mid-1920s, the Indonesian Communist Party has has grown and has, has, has significant membership in uh, some of the major industrial cities like Semarang and Surabaya and uh, Jakarta. 
And against common turn orders, they engage in an ill-fated revolt in 1926. Uh, figures like Musso, who uh, represents sort of a more radical strand within the party, organized railway workers who wanted to start a revolution. And this um, this revolt in 1926 is almost immediately crushed by the Dutch. Thousands are arrested, and the party is um, really thrown into the underground and is is fairly insignificant for the rest of the 20s and the 1930s into the 1940s. It comes out of the underground in 1945 after World War II. And sadly, as it starts to amass power, it gets into a dispute with some nationalist officers in 1948. And um, this is a, a local dispute over local politics, but it gets used by the officers to crush the Indonesian Communist Party. And this is the so-called Madion Affair uh, in 1948. And Musso, the, the leader of the PKI, was killed. And um, the PKI is almost destroyed once again. So 1926, it's more or less destroyed for um, for two decades. And then 1948, the PKI is almost destroyed again. The PKI rebuilds after the Madion Affair. And in 1951, um, Dian Adit becomes the general secretary. And he famously pursues uh, the ballot box, not the Kalashnikov. Um, The PKI does not have an armed wing in the 1950s and the 1960s and pursues electoral strategies. In 1955, the PKI came in fourth in national legislative elections, which was a huge, huge victory and a a surprise for many. They got about 6 million votes, maybe 16% of the electorate. And this shows um, the success of Adit's strategy of a parliamentary path towards power. Adit also sees the expanding influence of the PKI over the growing trade union movement. And there's really a synergy between the trade unions and the PKI, and they both get stronger over the course of the 1950s and the 1960s. So there's this tremendous growth of the PKI in the 1950s. It's only a few thousand in, say, 1950. But by 1955, we're looking at membership in a couple hundred thousands. Um, Estimates are that by 1960, maybe 1.5 million, possibly pushing 2 million by the mid-1960s. And that's just party membership. What's really important to keep in mind about the, uh, the PKI under Sukarno, especially as we move into the 1960s, is that there's a lot of fellow traveler organizations, some of which the PKI has some real control over, some of which are allied organizations. Uh, one of the more famous is the Indonesian women's movement, the Gerakan Wanita Indonesia, or Gerwani, the Indonesian women's movement, which by some estimates is the largest feminist organization in the world in the early 1960s. And it's closely allied with the PKI, but not under its control. There's also the People People's Cultural Institute, or LECRA, which was an, uh, an artist uh, organization very closely tied to the party. The All-Indonesian uh, Trade Union Center, the SOBSI, uh, was very closely tied to the PKI. The PKI also um, uh, has a lot of influence, if not control, over the Peasants' Union, the BTI. Um, and all of these groups bring about 20 million people under the umbrella of um, of the party. Now, they're not all party members, um, and there's various forms of autonomy, but they're, again, they're fellow travelers and have a sense of being part of this uh, movement. And in the, um, in the 1950s and in the early 1960s, 
under Adit's leadership, the PKI gets this reputation as being corruption-free. And uh, this is in sharp contrast to, say, the corruption that's starting to set in in some of the other political parties, and especially the Indonesian officer corps. There's a number of corruption scandals in the late 1950s and early 1960s. A young officer named Suharto got caught up in one of these corruption scandals. But the PKI has this very clean uh, reputation. And even though the PKI was doing really well in elections in the um, in the 1950s, the PKI supports Sukarno's decision to declare so-called guided democracy, suspending elections. Uh, this was in 1959. And in 1960, Sukarno put out this sort of curious political formula that he called NASACOM, N-A-S-A-K-O-M, which is a combination of nationalism, religion, agama, and communism. And he declares that he's going to blend these three ideologies, nationalism, religion, and communism together and create uh, an Indonesian path forward. This is, of course, a very vague and and contradictory proclamation, but um, it sort of satisfies um, the two main pillars of Sukarno's power, the Indonesian Communist Party and the TNI or the Indonesian Officer Corps. And the PKI also supports um, Sukarno because as we get deeper into the early 1960s, his speeches become more radical in in regards to international um, affairs. Uh, Sukarno gives these speeches about uh, the fight against what he calls Nekolim. And Nekolim is his um, acronym for neo-colonial imperialists. And, you know, many in the West look at these speeches and go, oh, crazy Sukarno sort of tilting at windmills and, and, and giving these sort of like um, mythical, almost mystic political proclamations. But keep in mind that the CIA that was caught red handed supporting rebels in the late 1950s, um, that the the CIA is engaged in numerous attempts to uh, destabilize, if not overthrow Sukarno. So when he gives these speeches against things like this, the so-called Nekolim, um, he's talking about real forces that are trying to destabilize his, uh, his government, if not remove him from power. And it's in this context that um, in 1957, Sukarno starts to move against Dutch-owned businesses. In 1964, he starts to move against British businesses. And the PKI supports these moves. They see this as a struggle against international capitalism as a struggle against uh, neo-imperialism. Um, unfortunately for the PKI, I, I think the, the main beneficiary of some of these nationalizations is the Indonesian officer corps. Another really important aspect of the, the PKI as we get into the early 1960s is their support of direct action to implement land reform laws. And there were land reform laws on the book but the government was not uh, enforcing them. So the PKI with the Peasants Union, the the BTI, uh, would mobilize poor and landless peasants to seize land and to, to, again, enact the land laws which are on the book. And this angers and frightens a number of large landowners. And many of them have very close ties to both conservative Muslim parties and to the Indonesian officer corps. So the action of the PKI in supporting peasants' rights immediately alienates uh, landowners, uh, Islamic organization, and the officers' corps who have these intersecting interests. 
Meanwhile, the PKI engages in educational campaigns, such as uh, spreading literacy uh, throughout the countryside. And the PKI schools actually do a much better job educating illiterate workers and peasants than the cash-strapped state schools uh, or the private Islamic boarding schools. So more than just a political party with an economic agenda, the PKI represents really a social and cultural revolution. And uh, in opposition, their their enemies in the officer corps, in the landowning class, in the Islamic parties, um, uh, start to take an increasingly reactionary tone and look at the PKI as not just this economic threat, but a threat to culture, tradition, and in some cases, they declare a threat to religion, even though this is a huge fallacy because most PKI members are observant Muslims. How did Suharto come to seize power in the coup of 1965? And what actions did the new regime take against the left? Well, the events of September 30th, October 1st, 1965 are, are very confusing and and possibly confusing by design. And what really we need to understand is that there's two coups. There's uh, an attempted um, attack on the, the the Indonesian officer corps in uh, September 30th, the night of September 30th. And then there's this slower coup where Suharto seizes power from uh, Sukarno. So in 1960, late 64, 1965, there's rumors of a so-called generals council of CIA-backed right-wing generals that the rumor is maybe they were going to move against uh, Sukarno. And um, what happened on that night of September 30th is a number of mid-level officers uh, who claimed to be acting against uh, something like this general's, uh, general's council, they raided the homes of a half dozen of the top generals in Indonesia. So they're, they're superiors. And um, maybe they were going to kill them. Maybe they were going to kidnap them. It seems very likely that um, perhaps the plan was really to kidnap and force the hand of these generals. But during the raids, um, three of the officers, uh, three of the generals are killed uh, at their homes. Others are taken um, to an Air Force base in the suburb of Jakarta. In the chaos of the raid on General Nasution's home, the general is able to escape uh, he breaks his ankle, but jumps over the wall into the Iraqi embassy next door. But his five-year-old daughter is mortally wounded and will die uh, a few years later, young young Ade Nasution. And the, the generals who are taken alive and the bodies of the generals that died are taken to this Air Force base on the, um, again, in a suburb of Jakarta, the Halim Air Force Base. Meanwhile, um, rebel units move on the radio station in central Jakarta. And they broadcast a message, which is heard across Indonesia, saying that they're engaging in a coup, but in support of President Sukarno. And they um, they condemned their corrupt officers, uh, their immediate superiors. A number of scholars think this is really an internal army affair that got a bit out of control. But it's complicated because the the coup plotters had a, a small uh, command post on a Air Force base, uh, the Halim Air Force Base. They were in an area known as the Lubang Buaya, the crocodile hole, and uh, has sort of a sinister sounding name. We know that Sukarno and Adit, uh, the head of the PKI, happened to be nearby at the Air Force Base. They probably had some knowledge of the coup. 
Um, it's, it remains unclear exactly what happened, but as the clue fizzled, both Sukarno and Idit fled. Um, and the, the coup plotters, um, murdered the generals that they had kidnapped and took all their bodies and threw them in an abandoned well and then covered up the well and planted a banana tree on it. The, the generals were not tortured. Uh, Benedict Anderson, the great theorist of nationalism, the author of Imagined Communities, and an Indonesia scholar himself, uh, he found the autopsy report years later, and there was no signs of torture of the generals. They were they were executed, thrown in this well. In all this chaos, in the early hours of October 1st, uh, a brigadier general, Suharto, who had previously gotten into some trouble with corruption with um, some of the officers who uh, who were targeted, um, he takes charge. And even though General Nasution would outrank him, he steps in and he sends his paracommandos to retake the um, the radio station. He then moves on the Air Force base um, a few days later and um, he finds the bodies that are in the well and he has camera crews out there and makes it a big media event that he found the bodies of the murdered generals. The bodies are exhumed and then he organizes a uh, state funeral for the generals. And immediately Suharto uses this coup as anti-communist propaganda. Um, did the PKI know about the coup? Well, yeah, Adit probably knew something about it and may have been involved in some way. But the rank and file membership of the PKI, absolutely no way. The various organizations such as Gerwani and the BTI and Lekra and so forth, they had no idea. The PKI membership is just as confused and surprised as everyone else. But the army leadership is not confused. They immediately move into action. They declare the PKI is responsible for this. They start immediate roundups of PKI members and almost immediately summary executions of PKI membership and people in related groups. This process starts in Aceh in the, the far northwestern tip of Sumatra, and then moves out of Aceh uh, through Sumatra. And then the, uh, the camp, this white terror campaign moves from west to east across Java. In West Java, there's uh, huge numbers of individuals who are imprisoned. But in central and east Java, the army moves on um, uh, PKI strongholds, and there's a, immediately a campaign of mass murder throughout central and eastern Java. Things culminate uh, in 1966 as the army has moved across Java and onto ba- the island of Bali, where maybe some 8% of the island are killed, both by um, the Indonesian army, but also with local groups that are mobilized to act against uh, PKI members. We're now going to hear two clips from an extraordinary NBC News report from 1967. The reporter, Ted Hayes, presented the coup as a great triumph for US foreign policy in the struggle against communism. He uncritically repeated the talking points of the new regime about Sukarno's corruption and decadence. Hayes also repeated the propaganda line about the alleged communist coup. You might expect Hayes and NBC to have glossed over the bloody repression, but in this clip, Hayes graphically describes the slaughter in Bali and speaks to one of the perpetrators. The 300,000 people killed in Indonesia during the last 16 months are about 100,000 more 
than the total military casualties of all sides in Vietnam since 1960. In many cases, entire families were liquidated, but still there are thousands of widows like this young mother. Without trial, her husband and 300 other alleged communists were shot by the army and dumped into this mass grave. 50,000 in all were killed just on the romantic island of Bali. A young college professor named Rata, who helped remove the communists, explained how they went about it. Bali is such a beautiful island. The people are so attractive, climate so lovely. It's hard to believe that so many unpleasant things went on here in the last year. Yeah, but now Bali become more beautiful without communists. And this is the duty of the Balinese people to clean their own island from the communist influence. This is the holy duty. And we did it. In Bali, as really, we did it. Hayes went on to spell out the advantages of the coup for US corporations. His report included evidence of slave labor by communist prisoners. Indonesia has a fabulous potential wealth in natural resources. And the new order wants it exploited. So they're returning the private properties expropriated by Sukarno's regime. Goodyear's Sumatran rubber empire is an example. It was seized in 1965. The rubber workers union was communist run. So after the coup, many of them were killed or imprisoned. Some of the survivors, you see them here, still work the rubber. But this time as prisoners and at gunpoint. When the government ran things, they enlarged the staff, built houses and schools, and raised wages. Although production remained about the same, operating costs quadrupled. Profits went out the window, and with them, a vital source of export revenue vanished. The new order wants Goodyear back, and they, like dozens of other foreign capitalists, are anxious to return, because the wealth is there. Not just rubber, but oil, tin, lumber, spice, almost everything. Um, there'll, there'll be some sporadic uh, anti-communist killings in eastern Indonesia in the next year or so. And then the last sort of activity, military activity against the PKI is in 1968. In this violence, there's widespread um, uh, sexual violence against uh, women's bodies. And all sorts of rumors start to spread that claim that the Gerwani, that the that large feminist organization was deeply involved in the attack on the generals. They're called witches. They're called prostitutes, and worse. And rumors start to are spread by the army that the um, Gerwani had um, uh, prostitutes in Bali that had razor blades, and they were going to attack the uh, attack uh, Indonesian soldiers. Um, rumors are spread that the Gerwani at the Halim Air Force Base sexually mutilated the generals and sliced their genitals with razor blades. Sort of the most grotesque and uh, 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 slander is thrown out against these um, against the the Gerwani. And there's also lots of display of bodies as a form of anti-communist uh, terror, particularly in East Java. And again, it's this is led by the army leadership, but uh, sometimes they're using rank and file troops, but they're also working with local organizations, various religious groups, both Islamic groups and Christian groups in central Java, and also Hindu groups in Bali. 
and the TNI, the Indonesian Officer Corps, works with Preman. And Preman are um, organized criminals. They work with the criminal underworld. If you've seen the film uh, by Joshua Oppenheimer, The Act of Killing, it focuses on some of these Preman, these criminal underworld figures that served as uh, killers, uh, sort of made-up death squads. Recent research by uh, scholars like Jess Melvin have found that the uh, killing program was pre-planned. And um, the speculation is now that this this was a, a program that was set up in advance and they were really waiting for the green light, really waiting for what John Rusa has called a pretext for mass murder. Um, there's an immediate propaganda campaign Army newspapers blame the PKI, numerous stories of sexual torture by the Germani, stories about these uh, Balinese prostitutes, and a lot of that indicates a lot of sexual anxiety. Uh, the PKI is quickly banned, as are all, all other related political organizations, and the union movement is crushed. So in the space of a year, somewhere between half a million to a million, maybe more, Indonesians are killed, frequently by hand. Even more are imprisoned for well over a decade. And many are not PKI members. Many are members of feminist organizations, labor organizers, artists, or people who um, wound up afoul of the, uh, the death squads uh, due to politi- uh, local political or personal disputes. So that's, that's the, the coup that launches the mass murder. Meanwhile, Suharto uses this chaos to move in on power. And he jumps rank uh, ahead of General Nasution. Um, and then he starts to force President Sukarno to give him power. And Suharto represents a really different sort of political personality than Sukarno. If Sukarno was Bung Karno or Brother Karno or Bro or Dude Karno, um, Suharto is Pakharto. And Pat is short for Bapak or or father or sir. He's much more dignified, much more refined, uh, what's often called halus, sort of aloof aristocratic air. And um, he steadily moves uh, against Sukarno. And then on March 11th, 1966, he essentially forces Sukarno to hand over all power uh, to him. And the document that uh, Sukarno allegedly signed may be a forgery. It's known as the Super Samar, but and it's it's the document that legitimizes Suharto's seizure of power. And two years later, on March twenty seventh, nineteen sixty eight, Suharto becomes the second president of Indonesia, officially replacing um, Sukarno, and he institute what's known as the Orde Baru, or the New Order. And I think the the reference to Nazi terminology is not by accident there. Uh, And the New Order is centralized military rule. It also has a decades-long anti-communist propaganda program and keeps promoting the big lie of PKI guilt, that the PKI was trying to overthrow the country. They murdered the generals, and that the PKI was going to launch this attack on the Indonesian nation, which is which is untrue. The PKI had no uh, meaningful military component, but this big lie is central to the regime. Under the new order, there's no discussion of the mass murder. And um, those who survived the killing, who were imprisoned, but uh, released after a decade or so, 
the ex-political prisoners or the ex-topple face tremendous discrimination, both themselves and also their family for having been associated with the PKI. And former Gerwani members face tremendous discrimination um, due to this propaganda campaign. And under the new order, it's really impossible for any social movement to form, any independent social movement to form. And uh, unions are just completely crushed uh, by the new order. How did the events of 1965 reverberate around Southeast Asia and the wider world? Well, the United States of America and its allies were delighted. Famously, U.S. News and World Report ran a headline, Indonesia, hope where there once was none. This is in, this is in 1966, um, after the killings are, are really in full swing. Time magazine referred to the killings as the West's best news for years in Asia. And Time magazine uh, called the new Suharto regime scrupulously constitutional. Uh, the New York Times quoted a gloating Australian prime minister, uh, Harold Holt, uh, who said, quote, with half a million to a million communist sympathizers knock off, I think it's safe to assume a reorientation has taken place. So this sort of dry understatement, sort of a gloating about mass murder and the political realignment of Indonesia. Because uh, Suharto dramatically moves Indonesia from being friendly with the People's Republic of China to being firmly in the American camp in the Cold War. Uh, Meanwhile, the combined overthrow of Sukarno and the destruction of the PKI served as a model for future anti-communist Cold War operations. Uh, This lesson was not lost on uh, the leadership in Hanoi. Um, The Vietnamese leadership during the American War in Vietnam saw what the Americans were capable of, and it clearly impacted uh, the way they ran the war after um, 1966. In Cambodia, both the left and the right paid attention. As early as 1967, enemies of the fledgling Khmer Rouge uh, movement uh, said, hey, we don't we don't lack Suhartos in Cambodia, meaning we can move against the Khmer Rouge. And then a decade later, there's a Khmer Rouge document that mentions the Indonesian mass violence against the PKI as a justification for why the Khmer Rouge had to take such a hard line. So both left and right get radicalized in Southeast Asia by this example. In Chile, the 1973 coup against Salvador Allende was codenamed Operation Jakarta, echoing Suharto's violence against the Gerwani, um, the union movement, the peasants movement, the artist movement. And Pinochet's soldiers rounded up the same kind of people in Chile, party members, but union leaders, student activists. And in Chile, even the um, the Chilean folk singer, Victor Jara, was killed as a political opponent. And Vincent Bevins has, has detailed the numerous links between the Jakarta uh, example and cases in Latin America uh, in his book, uh, The Jakarta Method. The international business community was delighted. The far-right white supremacist Texas oil man, H.L. Hunt, called it the greatest victory for freedom since the last decisive battle of World War II. He's referring to the overthrow of Sukarno and the mass murder of uh, up to a million people. This is the greatest victory for freedom. And Suhardo, because he immediately opens up Indonesia for direct foreign investment, is, is hailed by the international business community, especially in the oil and gas sector, 
but also in the mining sector. And the um, the gold mines in Papua proved to be the richest gold mines in the world. The international business community also welcomes the absolute crushing of the Indonesian labor movement. With no unions, Indonesia becomes a really wonderful place for uh, foreign capital to invest. Now, I would note that this celebration of the, the crushing of the PKI and of organized labor continues decades after the events in question. When Mitt Romney was running for president in 2012, during a debate, he said that what happened in Indonesia back in the 1960s, where we helped Indonesia move towards modernity with a new leadership, we brought them in the technology that allowed them to trade in the world. Um, that's it's a quote from Mitt Romney in a debate, and he's he's praising what happened in Indonesia in terms of the destruction of organized labor and the uh, the leftist political party. Again, as late as 2012. To what extent were foreign states like the U.S. and Britain directly involved in the coup and the bloodbath that followed? Well, this opens up a really interesting divide in the historiography. And there's actually quite a bit of debate amongst scholars as to how much importance to give Western involvement in these Indonesian events. Of course, the CIA was involved. Of course, they're involved. But this is a case of Indonesians killing Indonesians. And some of the um, American-focused scholarship kind of denies Indonesian agency and sort of uh, underplays the Indonesian role in these events. And truth be told, it would have been difficult for the CIA to really do that much on the ground in Indonesia in the um, the years leading up to 1965 uh, with martial law and with uh, Sukarno's uh, increasingly hostile attitude towards the United States. It would have been very difficult for them to really gather that much intelligence. That said, the United States cultivated uh, an important group of uh, Indonesian officers, recruited them for training at Fort Benning, uh, which would go on to be home of the School of the Americas, and really created a cadre of pro-American officers. Um, and many of these are the the officers who step up in 1965 and 66 and are really instrumental in the mass murder. It's very likely that the CIA, British, and Australian intelligence we're pushing the army to move. And it's it's very clear from recent research that there was coordination ahead of time, possibly with the likes of Suharto. It's tough to prove this, as obviously the Indonesian government and the Indonesian military doesn't want these documents released. But at the very least, it looks like Western intelligence was calling for some sort of scenario like the Reichstag fire in Germany in 1933, some sort of crisis that could be blamed on the PKI and be what uh, John Rusa has called a pretext for mass murder. But, you know, Indonesians did this killing for their own reasons, with some help for the West, and importantly, with encouragement from the West, and with guaranteed impunity. Uh, the Western capitalist democracies made it really clear that they would not hold the Indonesian military accountable for these crimes. Indeed, the United States actually celebrates Suharto and celebrates his move against the PKI and against Indonesian organized labor. Gender, gender, isok, isok, the darling pasar.
Many thanks to Michael Vaughan for that account of modern Indonesian history. You can hear the second part of Michael's interview in our next episode. He'll be talking about Suharto's new order and the country's political transformation since the late 1990s.